Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor at Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor at Bloomberg Markets. So Tracy, you know what's something really fun about having a podcast? (laughs) Okay, tell me. What? That I can read a book or read an article and then two days later say, hey, we should have the author of that in (laughs) that article or book on to discuss that. And we can do that. I think that's a really cool thing. Is this podcast going to become like Joe's book club? Yeah, it's basically going to become where a we're po- going. Yeah, basically, it's going to be just here's what <laughs> Joe read the week before and wants to talk more about. Okay. No, but I, I right. re- well, I can live. With yeah, that. no, it won't be that bad. I read good stuff. But um, uh, so I recently had the chance to read the book uh, "My Life as a Quant" by Emmanuel Derman, who was a physicist, a theoretical physicist, who eventually joined Wall Street during the quantitative revolution and sort of was at all, uh, you know, all these sort of, there's so much talk about the equations and models that run finance these days. Sure. And he was at the ground floor of how that all got built up. Oh, well, that's exciting. We've talked plenty about uh, mathematical models and their role in finance on this podcast before, so... Exactly. So why not? Exactly. So why not talk to one of the very original practitioners of it? And we have Emmanuel here in studio. So um, I say let's get started. Let's do it. Emmanuel, thanks for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. So I want to start with something in your book. One of the things that really struck me was you pointed out how the explosion of exotic equity derivatives was very much tied to the globalization of finance after the Cold War ended. And this really seemed like a poignant thing to read right now after the Brexit vote, when it feels like the world is arguably deglobalizing a little bit, finance seems to be in retreat. But explain to us the connection there, because I thought that that was something that I had never thought of until I read your book. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's funny. Nobody's ever mentioned that to me about my book before. I joined um, equity derivatives at Goldman. I'd been in fixed income. I joined equity derivatives in early 1990, and I was in charge of the quantitative strategies group, and we basically supported the options desk. And there was this flowering of interest in exotic options, because, and, and it was because of globalization. Essentially, once the Berlin Wall came down, People wanted to invest in foreign in foreign stock markets. They didn't want to buy individual stocks, so they used options, which was much simpler. There were indices developed all over the world, from the Nikkei to the CAC to the DAX, and um, everybody wanted a part of it. And and there was also this fashion in finance for, um, well, it's still going on, for sort of not just buying your own country, not just buying the stock of your right. own company. Canadian, actually Canadian pension funds used to come to us because Canadian pension funds weren't allowed to buy more than a small amount of foreign stock. And so they would do their exposure through derivatives. Yeah, so explain that a little bit more. I think people understand what essentially an option is, but explain, well, why are they called exotic options and why do they have an important role in giving people this international exposure? Okay, I'm, I'm glad you're asking that. <laughs> no, nobody's ever asked that before. They're called, well, an option is the right, but not the obligation to buy something for a certain price in the future. So for example, you might uh, have, a, have the right to buy IBM a year from today at $100 or whatever it is. And if IBM's trading above $100 at that point, you can buy it for $100, sell it for 110 If it's trading at 110 and make 10 bucks. And that's a, what people call a vanilla or a standard call. Mm-hmm. And there's a put similarly. But with exotic options, they allowed you to get 
a much more fine-tuned exposure to different things. So, for example, the first thing I worked on, which was kind of famous, not, not, not me individually, but at Goldman, was something we called the Nikkei, um, the Nikkei put options, where Goldman issued puts on the Nikkei. And the Nikkei was trading at, I don't remember what it was, at its all-time high of like 29,000 or something like that. And there were a lot of people who were skeptical about the future of Japan, rightly, as it turns out. And Goldman sold puts on the Nikkei. But the reason they were exotic was people wanted to bet on the Nikkei going down, but they didn't want to face currency risk. And normally, if you bought a put on the Nikkei, the Nikkei might go down, but the yen might strengthen. And so you wouldn't make any money, even if the Nikkei went down. Ah. And what was exotic about these so-called quanto options were that um, you locked in a guaranteed exchange rate. It didn't matter what the yen dollar did. When you exercised your option, you got paid in dollars the amount that the Nikkei dropped in percent. It was a put. Am, am I making sense? Yeah. So that was exotic because... So in other words, it's not just a plain vanilla. It's not a plain There's vanilla a, option. There are embedded in it are more uh, scenarios and more hedges. And yes, so or, or actually less in a sense. You, If you bought an ordinary put on the Nikkei, you would be exposed to both yen dollar and to the Nikkei. And this way you remove the yen right. dollar. So people would do this kind of stuff or people would buy knockout options, which were very popular, which is an option that um, gives you money if it's called, gives you money if the stock rises, but gets knocked out if the stock drops too low, if the stock drops too high. All of these ways were basically ways of making speculative bets by putting up less money than you would for a vanilla option. You, you were betting on a smaller range of probabilities than just what was what was reflected in an ordinary option. And it lit- Emmanuel, one thing I always wonder about when it comes to these sorts of exotic options and instruments is you're allowing the investor to sort of fine tune their risk. But how do the banks that are actually offering these kind of products, how do they manage their risk? Because things like knockout options can be, you know, um, <laughs> kind of painful for the issuer, right? Yes. So, um, I mean, that, that was my job exactly. We, we, Goldman, for example, issued these exotic options. But if you sold them to somebody, you didn't want to suffer when they made money. So you had to hedge yourself. And you couldn't just buy an exotic option from one person and sell it to another. So you had to deconstruct it. And what Black Shoals and all the extensions of option pricing do is tell you essentially how to synthesize an option or an exotic option from the underlier, which is the currency and the and the Nikkei itself. Am I making sense? Mm-hmm. Not sure. Okay. No, no, absolutely. Okay. So, so the models we worked on, which I did for 10 years, told you, how to dynamically every day trade the yen dollar and every day trade the Nikkei in order to replicate what you were selling to somebody else. You were selling them a package and now you had to create it for yourself so that when they won, you wouldn't lose. Yeah, I love the way in your book you essentially described it as you're buying raw material, some combination of equity, cash, the yen, and then you're repackaging it and basically selling it as a markup like any other yes. manufacturer does. Done honestly, that's what it is. You're, you're a middleman. You're a market maker. You're a, you're a wholesaler. You're buying complex stuff that people want to sell and you're decomposing it into its constituents. Or you're selling people complex stuff and, um, and making it out of, out of simple constituents. So it's really, I, I think I say in my book, it's a bit like fruit salad. If you want to mm. know what you should charge for fruit salad, you have to know the cost of canning, the price of pears, apples, peaches, etc. And then you, you add a spread for your risk because the models are really a little bit shaky. Uh, so let's actually, let's go back. Tell, you, know, you mentioned <clears throat> the black skulls method, but tell us about 
your beginning on Wall Street, where quantitative finance was in uh, when you joined, and then what you worked on in your earlier years. You know, I came to Goldman in 1985. I'd been a physicist before that, and then I worked for five years at Bell Labs, where I really learned a lot of software engineering, which was very useful. And I joined Goldman in 85. And the hot thing in those days, interest rates were coming down from a high of you know 20% in 79. We've lived through a massive bull market in bonds right now. And um, I worked on Black Shoals explained how to price options on stock. But now people were interested in buying options on bonds because as interest rates came down, people wanted to speculate on them going up again or going down again. And so there was a big market in options on treasury bonds. And the first thing I did was work with Fisher Black and a colleague of mine, Bill Toy, on trying to extend Black Shoals into pricing yield curve things, uh, bonds, um, Mm -hmm. bonds that paid coupons rather than stocks. And bonds are very different from stocks because stocks have no termination date, but bonds have a finite life and and, um, you really need a totally different model. And I worked on something called BDT, everybody calls it Black Dermot Toy, which was one of the early models that did that. The world's gotten much more complicated since then and people make much more elaborate models. So the way you describe the 80s and the sort of explosion in exotic options, it almost sounds like a sort of industrial revolution type thing for the financial industry. Suddenly you have this big evolution happening in products and ways to manage risk, and it kind of leads to, um, I guess, more revenue and, and growth of the financial industry as well. Yes, it was. Um, everybody, it, it was globalization. Um, it was um, the ability to trade foreign markets suddenly. Um, it was actually, I was an academic before, and it was actually very exciting. Everybody was waking up every day to new products coming out and trying to, or your bank wanted to issue new products, and you were trying to figure out how to value them and hedge them because they, they wanted to eliminate as much risk for themselves as possible. And so there was a, there was a yeah, there was a literal sort of, efflorescence of papers on exotic options and how to hedge volatility and the invention. I worked on variant swaps, which are ways of trading um, volatility rather than stocks. So how did you feel about actually leaving physics and academia and going to Wall Street? Because I imagine it must have been quite a different work environment, right? Yes, I was was very ashamed. (laughs) You know, people who in physics, and even I have colleagues today who are in physics, they go into, I wrote about this in my book, they go into physics a little bit like um, with a religious sort of fervor, thinking they're going to discover something fundamental or try to discover something fundamental. And um, everybody looks down on you if you start to become practical, if you start to go out to make a living. Um, We all despise people who did that. And eventually I did that too. (laughs) Yeah, I I think one of the little anecdotes in your book was about having some friend who then, who went to work on traffic patterns in the city and f- yeah. feeling sorry for him. Or yeah, yeah, down I, I, him. I, yeah. Even though it sounds like interesting stuff. It is. One of the lessons I've learned is that, um, is that actually everything's interesting. It's sort of like uh, to see the world in a grain of sand. If you look hard enough, then mm-hmm. a lot of things become interesting. But physics felt a bit like a religion, and people looked down on you when you sort of left the monastery. And I, I felt that for a while. I spent five years at Bell Labs, which was interesting, but but it was my first experience of working in a corporation, and I sort of hated it. And then when I came to Gold, to Wall Street and to Goldman, I actually loved it because they kind of took an academic interest in this stuff. And so you woke up every morning working on something interesting, but at the same time, there were people who really wanted it. Yeah, actually, I, I'm one thing that I still didn't quite understand. So while you were working for 
Goldman, you also published papers regularly and sort of publicized your findings. How does that work, the tension of wanting to have a model that allows Goldman to profit while also wanting to do research that the public can know about and you can have your name attached to? Yeah, that, that's... Um... I think that's pretty much vanished. People on Wall Street, especially with Sarbanes-Oxley passing 10 or 15 years ago, they, they don't publish much research anymore. But I grew up in an era where people develop new things. And unless somebody really insisted that they were incredibly proprietary, like now, for example, algorithmic trading, people, people won't publish papers mm. on. But the options business was by and large a sales business. You know, you, you were making money not so much from speculating in volatility, but from providing people, services, and and the more you educated your clients, the better mm -hmm. they understood what you were trying to do. So um, it was a bit of a struggle, but I worked for Fisher Black, and um, I pushed quite hard. We had a culture where, where unless somebody, it started out where you could never publish, and then it became, after a few years, like they had to say you can't publish rather than you can publish. Did you ever get pushback from your employers, Goldman or someone else, about, uh, I guess, the real-world application of some of the stuff you're doing or its ability to generate money? Like, if you were working on a project and they couldn't exactly see the commercial interest in it, would they ask you to stop? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I published a lot of papers, and I like doing that, But and I had a big group of people that did that, and, and sometimes actually contact me, and they say they didn't realize what a rare environment it was because most people weren't allowed to do that. But we did that, but at the same time, our real job was building risk management systems for the people that traded equity derivatives. And so I would say we sort of earned our keep by building software that embedded mm. these models and that let them manage their positions. And at the same time, we had to build new models and yeah, they more or less agreed to let us publish, although they sometimes didn't like it. <laughs> One of the things that I found that maybe everybody knew this before me, but that I did not know until I read it in your book, was that the 1987 stock market crash caused a permanent change to the financial market landscape in terms of how options before that crash priced and afterwards, and that it permanently changed the way people value things. Can you explain what happened? Yes, I can. Um, um, and I'm actually writing a textbook. I've just finished a textbook on that right now. But, um, but what happened in before 1987 people pretty much used the Black-Scholes model to price options. Is it too technical to talk about different strikes? No, go for it. Okay, with different strikes. And they still used the same model and attributed the same risk to the stock that lay underneath the option. But after 1987, when the market dropped 20% in October in one day, all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. And from then on, everybody, I'm being a bit anthropomorphic, but everybody understood that markets tend to crash down and glide up which is kind of what's been happening here too. You get a big move down, mm -hmm. but you get slow moves up. And so if the world is more likely to move down dramatically but go up slowly, you ought to charge more money for a put, which will make money when the market drops. And everybody immediately did that, and it's been like that ever since. It, it, it amazes me that the idea that markets don't crash up and only crash down was something that wasn't reflected in the market until 1987. I mean, we had mar we had stock market crashes before then. Yeah, I guess there was no options market in, in 1929. Mm. And um, the options market didn't really get big until Black, Black and Scholes published their paper in 73. And yeah, there was a 14-year period where, where people didn't worry too much about this stuff. And, and it's been like that ever since. And in fact, the gold market changed in the late 90s because central, central banks in 
Uh, some central bank in Switzerland did something or other about gold. And ever since then, gold tends to crash up when the market goes down. Gold doesn't. Gold, gold tends to go down slowly and go up dramatically. Ah, right. And so you get an inverse sort of option behavior that's been there since. So all this talk about market crashes is kind of reminding me of what's going on right now in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum in the UK. Um, we obviously saw markets sell off after that, but we saw a lot of people worrying about what systematic traders, uh, you know, like risk parity guys, that sort of thing, what they would do. And those guys have been likened before to sort of modern portfolio insurers yeah. in the sense that they could create this sort of feedback loop during a big sell-off. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I think that's true. I think anybody who behaves mechanically um, um, is behaving a bit like portfolio insurance. And and if people know it's coming, they start to try to dodge it. I mean, the, the risk parity people have actually done very well in the past few months because they, they like... Um, uh, they they invest equally in in bonds, stocks, and commodities, and all of those things have gone up. So, um, but yes, since they're behaving mechanically, there is a danger that they keep doing the same thing. And and you you can only be clever if you're a small part of the of the ocean. But if you're the whole ocean, then then and everybody's doing the same thing, then you your models don't work because you're actually affecting affecting the thing you're trying to model. So yeah, I think that could happen. Uh, you mentioned that part of the reason you uh, did the work early or early on in your work, there was a lot of demand for it because there was a major shift in the direction of interest rates. Right now, interest rates are only going in one direction. Every yeah. day we wake up to new lower rates around the world. Presumably, one day that will change. It could be next week. It could be years from now. When that does happen, will we see once again lots of models just being completely destroyed and types of portfolios not working and a sort of re-looking re, re at how to do all this stuff? Well, that's a, I mean, I think that's already happening. That's a perceptive question. If you look at the thing I mentioned earlier, this Black Derman toy model, and essentially all the interest rate models that people built, they always assumed rates could never go negative. If you try buying software, they actually won't let you enter a <laughs> negative rate. And so I don't really work on this stuff anymore, but I think a lot of people have been working for banks on how do you value options when when there's actually a negative interest rate, which the previous model just didn't allow. And um, I, I mean, this stuff is very different from physics. I try to point out in my book because in physics, once you figure out the way the planets work, they stay that way. They don't really care what you say about them. But when you figure out a model for markets and everybody uses it, as Tracy was pointing out, it actually starts to affect the thing you're modeling. And so no model lasts forever. You know, there's, there's, um, it lives for a while, and then people get smarter when the market, which is what happened in 87, when the market suddenly misbehaves, and they adjust their model. And it's, it's sort of an endless leapfrog in a way. Well, I, I suppose that gets to the heart of one of the major criticisms leveled at quantitative finance and at models, which is that how useful are they really? We hear all the time about like 10 sigma events in markets, things that are only supposed to happen every, you know, one day in 5 million years and things like that. And they seem to keep happening. So clearly, the models are missing something, right? Yeah, you're right. Um, I think yeah, I've written a lot about the section. I think models are only good as as long as the world stays in the sort of regime that you're currently in. And then they provide a good way of valuing things as long as things change a little bit, not too much. But when you move to a new regime like negative interest rates or this whole central bank, um, sort of the last seven years of risk on, risk off, then your old models don't work. And um, 
Yeah, I, I kind of like to say it's idolatry to imagine that you can write down an equation that's going to um, accurately reflect the way people behave. Uh, so let's sort of start or go back to where we talked about in the beginning with the connection of globalization and exotic options. In the wake of the Brexit vote, arguably finite, the world maybe deglobalizing somewhat. What is uh, what is your assessment of the financial industry these days? Every day we wake up to news about layoffs, retrenchments, uh, large banks divesting their uh, their foreign subsidiaries. Where do you see the industry going? You know, it goes in cycles. When I when I started out, it was very important to be able to program and to do quantitative work. Then at some point. Being able to program became a commodity that you could give to the IT people and you just did theoretical work, which I never really liked. And now now exotic options are sort of pretty much a small market. Nobody's interested in that anymore. Everything's done electronically and algorithmically. And so software skills for for financial companies and investment banks and for hedge funds have become much more important. And so I'm looking from the point of view of the job market, students mm. now, students now have to be good programmers if they want to get a job, which didn't used to be the case 10 or 15 years ago. So I think everything's moving away from exoticism and towards vanilla products, um, algorithmic trading, high frequency, um, trading by computer. That's what it's been like for the last five or six years, and I don't see that ending soon. Does that make you happy or sad, the idea that some of the exoticism of Wall Street might be going away now? A little bit sad in the sense that I had a good time. What was nice about the years that I worked at Goldman was that Goldman functioned in a very informal, unbureaucratic way, at least for the, first ten, for the first 10 years I was there. And if you worked with the trading desk, it was a bit like being in physics. There were a bunch of traders who were like the experimentalists and there were a bunch of quants who were the theorists. And you all spoke every day and you worked together. And it was kind of exciting. And um, I think what's sad a little bit for me now is that... Um, most of the jobs for people are in bureaucracy, in risk management, in risk reporting, in Basel regulations, mm. and um, yeah, very, very, um, very driven by regulation and reporting rather than actually trying to do new things. Is the regulation, while it may be boring and not exciting, is it on net a good thing for society, or do you think it could be counterproductive? I think it's good up to a point, but I'm a bit of a skeptic about. Uh, I'm a bit of a skeptic about what's happened in the last eight years. I I think they should have. I think that I think the only way people learn a good lesson is when they go bankrupt, when they lost a lot of money, by being stupid or by being careless or by just just by the fact that that's the way the world works. And I think nothing nothing prevents people from doing bad things again, except getting punished by the market for having done them. And I think forty thousand pages of regulation are are not an adequate substitute for just letting people go under when they do badly. Easy to say, I know, but um, but nevertheless. Uh, so you mentioned that you're working on a textbook. Uh, let us, what is that? And also just what else are you interested in these days? Oh, um, I'm working, I taught a course on the volatility smile, on this thing that happened since 1987 for the right. last 10 or 15 years mostly based on the work I did at Goldman. And so I've just finished a textbook on that, which is coming out in September, and it has a very pretty cover from, I don't know if you know who Hokusai was. He was some Spanish woodcutter. I have a picture mm. of a big wave, which looks like a volatility smile. So I'm finished that. Um, 
I wrote another book called Models Behaving Badly, which was more philosophical about the difference between models and physics. And I kind of liked, I don't know, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing quantitative stuff. I prefer doing qualitative stuff and writing now. Um, there's actually, I'm working a little bit with a guy who's a professor of anthropology. This is kind of interesting at, at, um, at the New School. And there are a whole bunch of them who are very interested in the anthropology of finance mm. and the way traders behave. And it's kind of interesting because traders use models that they know are wrong, but nevertheless, they keep using them in a more or less effective way. And we're interested in sort of looking at, at, at how this works. And plus, he's got this idea, which I think is right. It's a little that, that, that volatility became an interesting thing in society in the last 15, in the last 30 years. If you look at him, um, if you look at people riding surfboards or doing skateboarding, they're actually doing something very similar when they go up and down, hmm. up and down. They're sort of hedging out their... their maybe I'm getting too complicated. No, no, okay. Okay. This, is, this, well, is, this is interesting. Okay, well, well, when you value an option, you first hedge it. And so you, you get rid of the pure market risk and what you're left with is a sort of convexity kind of shape that's just the the residual part of the option. And it's very similar in a, in a metaphorical way to what skateboarders or to what surfers do when they ride, they ride a wave and they're not interested in the horizontal motion, they're interested in moving up and down the curve of the wave as it, as it curls. And um, this friend of mine is sort of interested in the whole idea of people in the world since the early 70s being interested in volatility as a, as a, as a quantity, the same way as people hmm. use options to trade volatility as an asset. So, you know, people who wander through city streets and try to experience the excitement rather than trying to go somewhere is a, is a sort of version of, of optionality. Interesting. Well, it sounds like fascinating stuff. And uh, I hope you uh, – I, now I really want to read more about this stuff, and uh, I hope you write on it. Okay. Um, yeah, my textbook's going to be a technical book, although I'm, I'm very against, if I can say one more thing. Please. Um, finance and financial engineering has gotten very mathematical in the last 15 or 20 years, and I kind of disapprove of it. People teach it as though it's a branch of mathematics, but really it's a real-world field, and it shouldn't have theorems or axioms. It's about the way the world behaves. And I'm, I'm trying to write my textbook in that way too, and a little bit of a, of a counter um, counterpoint to the way that people, people often teach finance now as though it's a branch of pure math, as though you write down axioms and you, you know, like Euclid, and you work out the results. And the world doesn't really work that way. And as you point out, all models are wrong. It's just yes, which which ones are less wrong? Yes. All right, Emmanuel German, uh, author of My Life as a Quant and Models Behaving Badly in a forthcoming textbook on the volatility smile. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. I was glad to be here. Well, Tracy, I, uh, I loved that discussion. I'm guessing you did too. Me too. I, uh, I grudgingly admit I, I will join the uh, Joe Weisenthal book club. In future, it's <laughs> you know one thing. I mean, there's a lot to unpack, obviously, but this this topic seems like such a great way of looking at so much Wall Street history, from it being strictly a sort of like personal driven business to then the rise of the mathematics to then the software driven. It seems like 
by examining this, we really get this sort of pretty big scope of how things have changed over the last several decades. Yeah. And I think one of the really interesting things that Emmanuel pointed out towards the end of the conversation was that even though we essentially just recorded a podcast that was sort of about physics and mathematical models and quantitative finance, so much of it actually has to do with human behavior and how traders and investors and people on Wall Street choose to use those models. And, uh, you know, we've seen in the past that sometimes it goes horribly wrong and sometimes they, they do have a lot of practical use. So I find that fascinating. And sometimes people's emotions just make them cause them to make horrible decisions, even though everything that intellectually or their models would say uh, would have advised against it. Exactly. And you know what, Joe, this was actually a really timely discussion to have given the market fallout from Brexit and all the discussion we've seen once again about uh, VAR shocks and things that aren't supposed to be happening, mathematically happening once again. Uh, It was a really timely discussion. I liked it. Yeah, you've written so much about that's a recurring theme of your writing is how these things that are supposed to only happen once every million years seem to happen a few times a year these days. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, the models uh, aren't really well suited to taking that into account. So we'll see what happens. All right. Well, this has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you should follow Emmanuel Derman on Twitter at Emmanuel Derman. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next week.